Welcome to We Fight For That from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. My name is John Lawford and I'm the Executive Director and General Counsel at PIAC. If you want lower cell phone bills, if you want a refund from a flight you couldn't take, or if you want to be treated better by your bank, we fight for that. Time for another round of consumer protection. Welcome to episode 20 of We Fight For That. Today's subject matter, long delayed, is crypto, cryptocurrency and uh, investments. And with me to help explain all of this is a master's student at the University of Ottawa Law Department, Gaurav Arara, who's back in the country now, but has been traveling all over the world. Welcome, Gaurav. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I don't know, this has been stalled from my side from quite some time, but I appreciate you being understanding and patient, and I'm glad we are doing it. Yeah, well, it gave me a little more time to think about questions to ask you. And as people probably see from the news, there's more on crypto every day than probably any other financial subject. And the purpose of today's inquiry, if you will, is is to get uh, an expert viewpoint from Gaurav, who's been studying the intersection of law and uh, and financial systems, and in particular cryptocurrencies and and uh, their effect on the legal system and consumer issues with crypto. So basically, you're going to be my sounding board, Gaurav, for um, for concerns that I, I I tend to spot as somebody who's worked in financial services and consumer issues for a long time, but from the perspective of someone who's, you know, trying to follow crypto, but doesn't understand the details and might overstate things. So I hope that you can help me because that's the way you've been helping me for the last few months. Gaurav's been uh, kind of seconded to, to PIAC under uh, some coursework with Professor Michael Geis. So uh, he's been kind enough to extend that beyond his coursework all the way into this, uh, into this podcast. So do you want to tell folks anything else about what you're doing now, Gaurav, or where you've been in the last little while, because you've been jet-setting. I just thought maybe you could let people know what your what your plans are with your career and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, presently, in terms of education, I'm pursuing my master's in technology law from the University of Ottawa. And parallelly, I'm working with a few blockchain-based companies and helping them with the legal stuff and some strategy part as well. One of the companies that I'm working with is Web23. They've received some Edra grant and what they're actually trying to do is create a phishing solution for web 2 and web 3 market and what it essentially means is let's just say uh, we have a website domain by the name of piac.com so if some other person tries to book a domain by piac.com so they'll notify you that there could be someone that will potentially impersonate you and along with that uh, another interesting thing that they're doing is they're trying to put names into the wallet addresses that we have in the crypto space. So the way it works is, um, I, I think a better way to articulate it would be like in the traditional world, we have uh, the domain names, but essentially these are just IP addresses. Uh, and the reason behind that is it's easier for people to connect with names and words than it is to connect with numbers. And that is why in crypto world right now, we have these long 32 words number addresses, which is actually impossible for people to remember but mm-hmm. by naming them and giving them a word it actually just makes it a lot easier so there's actually a lot of interesting things happening around in this space so it's uh, my journey to this point has been quite unconventional so after my school when i, I did my undergraduation in commerce from delhi and during that time i started my own startup 
it turned out pretty well but i felt that i should be engaged with something that is more intellectually engaging and that is how i landed with law when i entered into law school i interned at various places tried a bunch of different fields but i particularly liked tech law more while i was working with a few tech based startups and i decided that okay this is something that i probably want to devote my career towards i think in the second year of my law school someone connected with me over linkedin and they asked for some brief help over some crypto related issue and that is the first time i interacted with blockchain crypto industry and it just spiraled into me being more interested and intrigued about the space and i continued learning and i just decided that this is actually more interesting than just tech law because tech law is very vast so and the reason behind pursuing a masters in tech law is because i wanted to make sure that my fundamentals are really, really strong and given all the research that i'm doing in this area just oriented towards whatever is happening in the space be stable coins speed nfts and i'm actually very grateful to you that you allowed me to work on all these subjects when i was interning with you because it really helped me formulate my thinking and opinion on these issues so yeah well it was a win win yeah <laughs> you know, it was a win win yeah. and i think you'll find that as time rolls forward your your entry into this area will actually be more typical than atypical because it is a rapidly evolving area and how do people get into it well they get into it through electronic means through social media through companies trying to start up in the space and i think that you know with hindsight we'll probably think that your path into this was actually maybe pretty typical <laughs> of the way people get into it but but what i do want to do is kind of roll back do rewind here if i can use dj uh terminologies and go over some of the things that you and I did investigate during your internship with PIAC because I used the opportunity to explore all of these buzzwords we've already kind of mentioned uh, like stable coins and and uh, NFTs and this sort of thing and take the listener if you will a little bit more quickly than I had to but through the same journey over these buzzwords keywords and then discuss some concepts and then sort of finish up with the the bleeding edge of of crypto if i can as a plan so i wanted to go right back and and start where i think most people have something of an understanding of this whole domain and that's bitcoin yep and i know we don't want to spend too much time on this thing most people have had some exposure to bitcoin but just very briefly can you can you tell us what bitcoin and and similar type of blockchain systems that try to represent currency like ether are yeah absolutely i think it's a good place to start but uh, i think we should start with what cryptocurrency is and then maybe spiraling into blockchain sure cryptocurrencies are essentially just tokens that are built over blockchain and uh, they are secured intelligently by the use of cryptography and that spirals into what blockchain is and i actually saw this video or maybe an article and what it actually tried to do is trying to explain blockchain to a 5 year old and i thought, i actually felt that it was a very nice way to go about it because it captures all the essence of blockchain and what it actually brings to the table so mm-hmm. let's just say there's this 5 year old kid who wants to trade his toys with a different kid the only kids he will trade his toys would be the ones who are already his friends and the reason behind that would be because he already trusts them and that is how the scenario would work in a traditional way but if the whole process of 
you know, transacting or exchanging these toys is available on blockchain. The kid will be in a position to trade his toys with literally every other kid in the world. And the reason behind that would be blockchain is providing an additional layer of trust. And where does this trust comes from? It comes from because blockchain contains an immutable ledger. What we mean by this immutable ledger is, let's just say I sent you $10. So that ten, uh, that transaction where I sent you $10 is going to be available on the blockchain. And I think it takes us to the biggest question, how can we claim that this is something that is immutable and no one can tamper with it, or this is something that is secure? And that takes us to the decentralization part, which essentially means that there is no single person that is controlling the whole ecosystem, but there are a network of computers. There are actually lots of people which are termed as miners sitting around the globe, and they are putting their computing energy and they are being rewarded fairly for the same. And that is where the security of the blockchain comes from. So what we're saying is, let's just say there's this person who wants to tamper with the transaction or the data available on a blockchain. They will be able, they might be able to tamper with a few network or a few computers, but they can't do it for with the whole ecosystem. And that is why the whole design of blockchain is made in a way that blocks are only added once the data is seen in most of the blocks and most of the networks that are available. And that, I believe, is the main innovation. So how Bitcoin started, I think Bitcoin started as a rebellious act to the 2007 financial crisis. And that is yeah. why Bitcoin is particularly relevant for the currency aspect. And uh, so I think we saw a white paper by a pseudonym Satoshi Nakamura and no one really believed in the concept initially. And I, I think a person transferred some 10,000 or 2,000 Bitcoins for two pizzas, which could be worth in millions today. And it actually took a long journey to take us to this point. But after four years, we saw Ethereum. And the difference or I'd say the transition from Bitcoin to Ethereum is fundamentally that Bitcoin just contains a ledger, so it can only contain details, the Bitcoin blockchain. But when we talk about Ethereum, Ethereum is saying that Okay, apart from just the currency ledger, you can literally do anything else that you do in the normal world and you can do it on a blockchain. So apart from the financial part that banks do or how a currency operates, you can just build any app over it. And that spiraled into stable coins, that spiraled into NFTs, that spiraled into DAOs, and sure. that took us to this point. We better stop for the benefit of people who are trying to keep up there. The contrast you're making with Bitcoin and Ethereum and the whole blockchain on the web is with old-fashioned ledgers that people would know, which have now, of course, been digitized by banks. But basically, your double-entry accounting, where you write down what the transaction is, what the amounts are on both sides of the transaction. Um, that's that's really just as simple as what we're talking about here. And and what's happened is, as you said, rather than keeping it inside Royal Bank and their administration, that ledger is public and everybody can see it and you would think well that means everybody could change it but you're saying no because each computer on the node you know that interacts with this system are all verifying all the other transactions and therefore you know there's no incentive in all the endpoints to to in effect fake transactions in there and uh it keeps everybody safe so that's the idea the the, the weird thing about it of course is 
compared to a bank's ledger, which is kept very secret. This ledger is, if you know how to read it, completely public to everybody in the entire um, who can get access to having a look at that ledger or who's working on it, right? So that's another difference between a bank ledger. And the second thing I think that we should sort of underline for people is the uh, the Ethereum protocol or, or whatever you call it, uh, rather than just trying to deal with a currency token, um, which is Bitcoin in that case, you can put other other ideas or other things you would normally record in a ledger-like way on them. So like you mentioned DAOs and uh, or DAOs right. and, uh, and smart contracts. And when you think about a contract, uh, it's really just a set of instructions at its most basic uh, for two sides to do stuff, right? So that's why you can also port that onto Ethereum. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, I'd like to, because we have a lot to go through, try to explain something to people, you know, uh, maybe not everybody are good Marxists and they don't know all of the, uh, all of the uh, stuff around capital and currencies and this sort of thing. But I like to think of the functions that are enabled by this technology as, you know, being able to stand in as currency, which we've spoken of where you pay for things and just, you know, just like accessing a bank's, ledger where you say pay for something on debit um you know you go to the drugstore and buy something it debits your account and credits the uh, drugstore's account and it's kept probably in uh in one one or one or two banks uh, if not also through your payment card but um it's basically done on ledgers you could do that on the blockchain right i mean it's possible if it if it keeps up to speed um but you can also um try to use Bitcoin or Ethereum um, as a store of value. So in the sense that like the money that you put under your mattress or that you keep in a savings account in a bank, you expect that to guard value. Um, and it's there, you know, absent inflation, it's, it's worth roughly the same in a few weeks. What's the difference then between like regular currencies and Bitcoin that's different? I think this is a very interesting question, particularly because we have already labeled them as cryptocurrency, but we are not really sure whether they are a currency or not. Okay. Because for a bookish definition, I think a currency has to be a legal tender, and Bitcoin is only legal tender, I think, in uh, El Salvador or, or maybe a couple of other jurisdictions. But mm-hmm. other functions of a currency are store of value, medium of exchange. And uh, these are uh, Bitcoin actually solves these, and there have been a lot of contradicting opinions around this. But another thing that uh, really I think is a very interesting point is that when we talk about currency, we also think about stability. Because let's just say if I have a thousand dollars in my bank account, I want to know what I can do with that thousand dollars, and that is what makes it valuable. That is what makes me feel secure. But when we talk about Bitcoin and the kind of volatility we see in these markets, we're not really sure if I have one Bitcoin, it could be worth $60,000 one day and it could be worth $30,000 the next day. So that actually makes them more of an asset or I'd say more closer to an investment class than as a currency because it's, it's, I, I personally feel that stability should be an important aspect when we're talking about a currency mm-hmm. with which we can purchase things. 
and this and this is the uh, original reason why we saw stable coins like USDT and USDC. Yeah, that's where I'm going next. The stable coins. Okay. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe you can explain what stable coins are trying to do for Ethereum as currency or for Bitcoin. Sure. So stable coins are like any other cryptocurrency, but they're just not volatile. So their value is pegged to a real world asset. It could be a fiat currency or it could be any other asset like gold or something else. But for our purpose, I think fiat assets make fiat currency makes more sense. So mm -hmm. the primary stable coins in this space are USDT, which is by Tether, and another one is USDC, which is by Circle, which is an entity owned by Coinbase. So uh, the way it works is, and there there are actually two types of stable coins. One are reserve bag. So what they're saying is they work just like banks. So if let's just say I am Tether, so I am saying that if you pay me one dollar, I am going to give you one USDT, and that you can use to purchase cryptocurrency or whatever you want to do in the crypto world. So, and I am also claiming that one USDT is always going to be one US dollar. Mm -hmm. The shady part with this space or this particular reserve part comes from the fact that there is no one overlooking the fact whether they have the right results or not. And this is actually a bigger deal than you'd like to think, which we'll get into just a bit. But And the other type of stable coins are algorithmic stable coins. So instead of having a reserve, they're saying that they're using algorithms to maintain the stable price of one particular crypto asset. And the way they usually do this is by actually having two tokens. So based on the supply and demand, they'll mint and burn new tokens and that will just keep the price of one token to a stable value. Mm. That's how this has been working. Yeah. Yeah, I think I didn't know so much about the algorithmic stable coin idea. It sounds a little like um, saying that the value of all the balls in the air of a juggler is always stable enough if you believe the person can keep juggling <laughs> um yeah. and and the other the other one um usdt which you're talking about which is associated with tether right 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 yeah that is um supposedly backed by real world assets which as you mentioned could be fiat currency which means just basically means us dollars or canadian dollars right. or or, right. or 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 you know euros or backed by gold or whatever with reserves sufficient so that if everybody or most people wanted to take their uh, USDT tether um, equivalent out of the whole system and convert it back into something like gold or, uh, or US dollars, they could all do it and no one would come up short if there was a quote unquote, you know, tether run. Uh, yes. Yes. On, yes. On the, on that holding. So those are the two that are there. They're trying to, in effect, um, set it up so that uh, cryptocurrencies can work as currencies and people can hold their cryptocurrency um, as, as you were saying, more as a store of value than as a, you know, a wildly fluctuating um, kind of uh, asset. And, and we see some, some problems with people holding pure Bitcoin and things um, getting dinged at tax time with um with capital gains <laughs> capital gains i think right. because sometimes the tax system will treat it as an asset um you know you don't have to um you can get taxed on investments and they can be of all sorts and if the tax department thinks that you're making a capital gain they can they can ask for it 
um, gets gets complicated fast. I don't want to lose people, so I'm going to go to <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to go <laughs> to our next subject word if I can. One that people and and to much to my chagrin, even children it seems are being um, at least having this stuff explained to them or encouraging them to get into, and that's NFTs. And you know, here we're talking about a, another more technical aspect to it, but a really real world function. So I'm wondering if you can kind of tell people what those are and how they fit into this whole ecosystem. Absolutely. Uh, personally, I feel NFTs are probably the most interesting thing in this space. Mm-hmm. And the reason I would say this is, firstly, NFTs are construed as, you know, artwork and digital collectibles. But yep. when we look at the literal definition, definition, what it means is that non-fungible tokens. So, But what I'm going into is actually a different word that is tokenization. Okay. Essentially, what we are saying is that you can literally put one anything and we are saying that this, and if I NFT that thing, it would mean that this thing is unique in the world and I can represent an owner for that thing. Mm-hmm. At present, its primary use case is in the artwork and digital collectible space, which we are talking about NFTs. And there's actually a lot of hype around this space. So the way it works is I'll just pick any image. I'll mint an NFT token out of it. And what I'm saying is that this particular image or this particular NFT is unique in the world. There is nothing else in the world like this. And at the same time, I am an owner of this particular image. Honestly, the way the space is working at present, I think 99% of the NFTs we are seeing are just going to be zero and it's just hype. But if we talk about the foundational technology, I actually see that. I actually believe that this is something that is going to be a big deal a few years down the line. Uh, I don't know if you're aware about it, but there's actually a very interesting use case of tokenization in the real estate market. So the way it works is, so let's just say there's this house house that is worth a million dollars and they'll shard it into thousand pieces for nfts and there'll be thousand nfts of that specific house and people can let's just say if someone doesn't want to spend a million dollars for a house so they'll just put in a thousand dollars and thousand people will do the same thing so and after that they can decide among themselves whether they want to sell it for a higher price or they want to put it on rent and that rent will be distributed among all of them so that is where the tokenization part is coming into play. If we are specifically talking about the art and digital collectible space, what's happening is it's not really the value of that specific NFT, but it is actually becoming a status thing. So if you look at that Bode Piot where the NFTs are actually being sold in mm-hmm. millions of dollars, what's happening is you're not getting access to just a monkey image. What you're getting access is to few of the most high profile people in the world and it's actually getting access to a community that's what happening with the top nfts another biggest innovation uh, which i'm very interested in in which nfts are bringing is resale royalties so uh, i think you must be aware that in canada resale royalty has not been acknowledged as of now Uh, even though it has been acknowledged in more than 80 countries but in us and canada it is still not acknowledged and what it means is that Let's just say I'm an artist. I sell my art for $500 and the new owner sells that artwork again to someone else for, let's just say, $5 million when I become famous. But mm-hmm. I will not be getting anything out of it. Uh, but as per the jurisprudence of moral rights, we are supposed to 
the artist or the original creator or artist is supposed to get resale royalties. And it has been acknowledged in various jurisdictions. With NFTs, you can actually enforce resale royalties and it is very efficient. And you're essentially depending on the contract of NFT instead of just what the law is saying. So that, I believe, mm. is very interesting. So you're not really dependent on law whether the law is acknowledging you should, should you be getting resale royalties or not. But essentially, we are just saying that if you have put that as a feature in the NFT, you will be getting resale royalties. Well, you know, that's interesting because there are these rights collectives, you know, like SOCAN, where you register. Yes. And then if you're an artist and you register, they look after um, chasing around people to to get royalties for the artist. And so you're saying this is going to be a technology that could, in effect, put those right societies out of business because uh, you don't need a superstructure to guarantee your payment or micropayment over time because everybody who interacts with a digital version of your artwork would act, would kind of execute this NFT, something in it to, to trigger a, a payment requirement before somebody could listen to the song or that sort of thing? Or am I getting that wrong? No, you are getting it just right because uh, what it's going to do is, so as you mentioned, the societies, they have to go out and pick up the person and then execute the whole thing. When we talk about NFTs and if the whole thing is executed on blockchain, as soon as the sale is executed, the artist will get the resale royalties and we don't really need a third party to execute the whole thing. Mm. Um, there was another thing that we spoke of in the fall because I, I mean, I'll get to this later on, but basically I'm extremely skeptical about, if not the technology of cryptocurrencies, certainly the way they're being used in financial markets to put regular people and consumers at risk, either through obfuscation or through not actually um, doing what they say they're going to do, if you will. But in the fall, we did have a discussion about how just to back up a bit, how cryptocurrency type ledgers might be helpful for foreign remittances. Could you just explain that if you have a minute, just to kind of back up for a second? Because I, I'm trying to trying to find, trying to discover positive use cases out of this rather complicated area. Absolutely. So uh, I think uh, the most practical example that I felt was when I was paying my tuition fee to the University of Ottawa, it took me a good five, six days to coordinate the whole thing with the local banks and then the uh, banks in Canada. It, it took me a good five, six days and they charged me a significant transaction fees. But mm -hmm. if let's just say the whole thing is on blockchain or let's just say I'm, I'm paying them in stable coins or Bitcoin, the whole thing can be done literally less than a minute with like one US dollar of transaction fee. Mm -hmm. And it is going to be more secure. I don't need to depend on a third party. So the way it works is in a traditional way or in the society that we live in, we actually need to trust and depend on few of the third parties whenever we are doing the transaction. So Bitcoin and these currencies that we are seeing, they can or blockchain, it can eliminate the whole process and you can just execute the transaction on blockchain. Mm -hmm. But uh, an interesting thing is they can still be, and we do have third-party intervention in uh, the blockchain space as well, but the whole process of doing the transaction can be a lot more efficient and a lot more transparent. So, uh, yeah, that's how I see this is happening. And I think it also takes us to what 
DeFi is what is decentralized finance. Sure. Because uh, yeah, because we're talking about financial services. So uh, the way I see this is the financial system essentially works on two things. They take money from people who have more than what they need and they pay them interest on it. And then they say that they're going to take this money and loan it to someone who doesn't have it. And they charge interest on it. And that's the whole financial industry. What DeFi is doing is that, let's just say I have some idle cryptocurrency in my wallet. So I, I can just take it and I'll get some interest or yield over it in the form of those tokens. And then let's just say there's this crypto exchange or some other business who need those tokens for some time and then borrow or lend those tokens from that specific third party and they will pay interest over it. So it's essentially what banks and financial institutions are and financial institutions are doing just on blockchain, but it's a little more efficient and a little more optimal. Hmm. Now, one of the other things that uh, I've worked on over the years got out of recently, but was being consumer representative on, um, there's a payments uh, regulator in Canada. They keep changing the name of it. <laughs> and it's, I'm blanking on it right now. But um, the whatever that thing was, I sat on their advisory board for consumer stuff. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of established banks, credit card companies. And there were a few, even at that time, uh, alternative financial um, operators who wanted to uh, get into get into disrupting if you will the payment system present chain you know with your credit card your bank your your acquirer which is the people running the system you know between the two and um, and complaining complaining of course that the banks and the, the credit card companies had structured it in a way so they could make the most money and and, and merchants also complain about credit card fees right? Um, and acquire right. fees as well when they got to pay uh, one of the in intermediaries. So what you're talking about is maybe disrupting that because you can um, go through the nodes. And I'm not sure if there would be, as you say, perhaps one 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 interfering middle middleman, but maybe not. And it would help for things like yeah, that are slow, where there's a lot of intermediaries taking a large cut, like remittances or payment of right. foreign uh, tuition, that sort of thing. But there was an issue, and I think there still is an issue from my point of view, because in those meetings for the Canadian Payment uh, Group, they were talking about implementing what they called re real-time rail, which was basically transactions are done and posted and, and finalized almost within a minute, maybe less, maybe seconds. And that's the kind of standard they were reaching for to get rid of you know, clearing checks over five days or clearing checks over two days clearing transactions on credit cards over a day or less, you know, because at the end of the day, the banks and credit card companies tote up everything and they equalize, right? And then they send money if they have to, or they at least write down a ledger again of who owes what at the end of the day. But, but doing all that reconciliation, you know, takes competing power and time. And they were aiming for, for all that to happen in, in fractions of a second. And my understanding is with Bitcoin, Ethereum, stable coins, everything, because of the nature of everybody having, or a majority of nodes on the network, so to speak, having to verify mm -hmm. um, transactions, that you just can't like pay for an Apple at you know at the grocery store with with Ethereum or Bitcoin right now because the processing time is too slow. Is that is that still the case? Is there any um, likelihood that 
the speed of uh, verifying the blockchain will approach real time so that we could use it in a standard consumer purchase kind of way? Or is that never to happen because of the structure of the thing being too decentralized? No, I, I think this has already happened because when we talk about Bitcoin, uh, if I'm doing the transaction in Bitcoin, it is going to take like five, 10 minutes to verify the transaction. And you're right when we talk about Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. if, even with Ethereum, it takes a decent amount of time. But now we are seeing some very advanced and efficient blockchains such as Solana and the various others as well, in which you can just verify your transactions in probably seconds. And the way it works is that they've actually implemented a different way to verify the transaction. Initially, it was proof of work and now it is proof of state. And they are quite technical and even I don't understand them <laughs> to <laughs> that depth. But uh, yes, there are now efficient and quicker chains available, which might be potentially used in consumer products as well. And okay. uh, I think there is this blockchain by the name of Terra blockchain, and they are actually doing something exactly in the space. And their mm. blockchain is also quite efficient. Okay. Uh, can I ask you then, here's another thing that has been a uh, long identified. It was identified by a former board member of ours who wrote some articles for Motherboard. It's been it's been it's been turned up by lots of um, environmental people. the The proof of work concept, which you were talking about, which is the way that um, at you know for some implementations of of blockchain technology, that's how you prove that your transaction is verified and can go through. Right. Um, that and and discovering the next block in the blockchain you know what people call bitcoin mining both of those functions take an inordinate amount of computing power like to the point where people are you know building server farms in northern manitoba with the windows open because it gets so hot and right. um and that's they think that's a great way to to do that and and you know empty empty uh lots are being turned into these into these server farms or you know even a volcano's power being used in El Salvador to supposedly right. uh, mint Bitcoin. Um, does the other concept you talked about, the proof of stake, does that help solve this energy problem? Because I, I got to say, at the end of the day, even if you think crypto is doing wonderful things, if we all burn up in a crisp because there's so much carbon in the atmosphere from computing, I don't think that we're going to be that much better off. So does this new system proof of stake as you're saying get rid of the energy problem or does it just make it slightly smaller yes it does i, I think it solves the problem i i think this is the probably the most relevant issue that should be taken into consideration by the authorities because i think a few days back i just read this article that the temperature in arctic was 40 degrees and an ice shelf of the size of the whole city of rome was melted because of this that was quite scary to read but mm -hmm. that is why I believe these the environmental issues, whatever we are doing with technology, are extremely important at this stage. And one of the arguments that I have read on this issue is that when we talk about financial institutions and the way they operate, they actually consume a humongous amount of energy as compared to what Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies are doing. But that argument, I believe, is only valid once Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are actually able to substitute the function of financial institutions, because right now we have both, and that is why we are just spending more and more energy. But yes, when we talk about proof of stake, it does help because 
I think it operates differently than just putting on computing energy. And I think it, it, it is more dependent on whoever has more tokens of that particular blockchain and they are able to verify the transaction. And that is why when we talk about the Ethereum protocol, they are going to upgrade their blockchain from proof of work to proof of stake by the end of this year. Mm. So I, I do think this is going to be helpful. Well, I, I, I do hope so, because certainly the uh, the amounts of, of energy that are quoted, you know, for running the present blockchain applications are, you know, the size of the energy use of, you know, Argentina or uh, or Finland or whatever, or Austria every day kind of thing. And it's 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 nuts. So um, adding that on, adding on that on top of, as you say, the present financial systems and indeed all of our computing, you know, energy use is is. It's not helpful to add more on top of the burning Thank pile, but that's that's interesting. Um, I, that did lead me to another question, which I'm just trying to formulate in my mind because I've got a piece of paper here with all these concepts written down, <laughs> and it looks like a bit of a mess. I, I guess I do have to turn to now a couple of other concepts that are related to cryptocurrencies, but that are are I guess larger and having more of a cultural effect. So one of them is the metaverse and the other one is Web3. And I'm wondering if you could try to connect what we've been talking about to both of those concepts, because I think they're linked, but not the same. Yeah, I, I think they are extremely linked and these concepts are just being enabled through the whole crypto and blockchain evolution. When we talk about metaverse, I see metaverse as a bridge from the traditional world to the digital world. And uh, for me, uh, it is quite scary as well and interesting, obviously, because of what it's doing. So the way it works is, let's just say I'm playing a game in a traditional game. Let's just say it's some Grand Theft Auto or some other game. If mm -hmm. I'm earning some points or some tokens in that game, that tokens and points are only going to be relevant in that specific ecosystem of the game. And I can't really take those tokens out of that game. So that is how it works usually. But when we talk about metaverse, if I'm playing a game and I'm playing it pretty well, I will be earning the tokens that I can take to a crypto exchange and literally cash them out. So I'm actually just creating money and value by playing the game, which uh, I, I, I believe is kind of scary because games are very addictive. So I don't know about the social costs of it, but it is pretty interesting. And another angle to the metaverse ecosystem is that it's actually going to be and there are a few metaverses where there is a replication of the normal world and where, let's just say there's a replication of my living room so i can just put my nfts that are there and someone can just walk in and they can purchase and trade those nfts so the point is the assets inside a digital game are going to be valuable in the real world as well which is quite scary and is going to have some social costs Maybe, yeah. I, I can certainly, um, I can certainly see that. Given that some companies that are already um, big into AI and machine learning are using, you know, effectively piece workers, people who do digital training of the AIs. You know, they're they're being paid in micropayments for the number of times they verify that something is or isn't a correct answer for the AI. So you could you could envision a world where, yeah, people hire gamers to uh, to win certain um, levels or whatever, and then they take a cut, right? And Absolutely. Your, your yeah. job be a gamer for for somebody in some distant company. You could be part of a stable of expert gamers for somebody, or maybe not so expert gamers, uh, so that somebody uh, could try to. Right. 
basically a lot a lot of people will be able to earn their livelihood by just playing games well except that maybe it's not a great livelihood is i guess what yeah. i'm wondering you know and 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 the, the present the present payment for peace workers is usually pretty pretty bad um the larger subjects uh, i guess of web3 I, I i'm trying to follow the hype on this and i've you know i've been listening to a bunch of podcasts which i think i've set you you know humorous ones um from uh, some of the some of the big followers of this uh, like trash future and stuff are people are trying to make the point that web3 is a thing and i'm trying to get my mind around it it seems that what people are calling web3 is any implementation of what we already do on the internet or other electronic means, except that you're doing it in a decentralized manner, probably with a blockchain, and maybe as a bonus feature with a, with some kind of coin or stable coin that they're also trying to get you to invest in on the side. Um, is that the way you see what people are calling Web3 or is Web3 something else? And is it distinct from the metaverse or are we, is it just a concept looking for you know, justification or is it just a buzzword? I, I'm trying to get a sense of what it is because I keep hearing people talk about it and I don't really know what it is. Sure. I think you put it really well, but I think uh, it would be a little better if we just try and talk a little bit about Web 1 and Web 2. So okay. how Web 1 started was you can just access information. So it's like Google, you're just putting something and you're getting, or you're just able to share something with people, but you're not able mm -hmm. to interact with it. Right. That's how Web 1 was. And then we saw Web2, where instead of just being able to access information, you were able to interact with that information. And then I can say just like social media, you're able to comment and even better example would be e-commerce. You can actually go out and purchase things over the internet. And so that was Web2. But when we are talking about Web3, we are essentially saying that whatever platforms and whatever websites you're using, you'll be able to have some part in that website and you'll be able to own some part of that website and along with that you'll get some decision making power and you'll be able to share profits in whatever that website or platform is doing so okay i, I think that's the way it is happening but uh another i'm not really sure uh, how that is going to spiral but just a thought that people actually turn out to convenience that we want things to be simple but when we talk about decentralization we are actually making it a little hard for people because they are supposed to have put in some efforts in terms of making decisions and I, right. I'm not sure people really want that so that is another thing that I'm seeing but a better way to which I believe is going to happen is there is going to be a section of people that are going to own these things and at the same time blockchain will be used as a foundational technology to make the whole process more efficient so an interesting thing that is going to happen is like you'll be earning something just for the fact that you'll be surfing to a website. So let's just say you're window shopping on, on, let's just say, Amazon. So you will be earning some tokens just because you're spending your time and attention on that particular website. And right. a very practical example of Web3 is the, what the Brave browser is doing. So it's actually built by the founder of Mozilla Firefox. And mm -hmm. there is a very privacy friendly browser I, I actually use it. it it's pretty nice so the amount of time you are spending on that particular browser you'll be earning some tokens over it it just tweaked something in my mind I, I think i wrote you some months ago saying hmm you know I, I saw someone else describing this whole thing or maybe i heard it on another podcast where people say crypto 
these tokens that you earn, right? You're saying you could do it for using a certain browser and, and navigating certain websites, looking at things, maybe not even purchasing, right? We kind of already do that to some extent, except you don't get paid <laughs> with your personal yeah. information and someone else monetizes that, right? Uh, so that's the web 2.0. And then everybody complains about privacy and, and how they're giving something for nothing. This here, you're saying, well, maybe you get a micro payment, but the payment's going to be in this token thing. And someone on this website or on this podcast I was listening to said, well, it's like you get poker chips inside this casino that you can't leave. There's no window to cash the poker chips out to get it into fiat currency again, because you 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 can only... Like, let's say you earn Amazon appreciation tokens. I don't know, whatever they're going to call it, right? And you could maybe buy real stuff on Amazon. That'd be one way to get your value out of it. But maybe not. Maybe it would just give you um, super Amazon buyer status. So when you went to spend real money in the future, they might, you know, if there was five of something left, they might actually give you one of the five. <laughs> you know, like maybe it would just be access. Maybe it wouldn't actually be value. I don't know. I just... I find it intriguing, like there's democratized potential, but I'm just not sure that we're going to see that kind of fairness and whether the company running these systems is going to share that kind of value with consumers or just try to keep it all, is what I'm saying. No, it is a very interesting point because what's going to happen is if the company is not going to share that value with the consumers, there is going to be some other company that will do that and the other company will just will be in a better position because people will move to that company. I'll give you a very practical example. When I just talked about Brave browsing. So if I'm enabling ads on that browser, I'll get some BAT tokens over that browser. Mm -hmm. And after I have a significant amount of tokens, I think it's 25 BAT, I can actually just transfer those BAT tokens to a crypto exchange. I can just cash it out through a stable coin or into USD or CAD. And that's how this is happening. So the point is, and there are going to be a lot of companies and platforms that will try to exploit people by doing what you said. And that, I believe, is just the transition process of every revolutionary technology, and it is going to take a few years. But after a point of time, I think we will reach to a point where the companies will actually share the value, will supersede and prevail over the companies who are not doing so. Well, maybe. Um, I'm certainly thinking that, uh, companies with a with a with a presently uh, large market share like Amazon might might have a thing or two to say about how this is going to be structured and what kind of sharing they're going to do, but we'll see. Um, I do have to move on to, and this has nothing to do with Amazon, but I do have to move on to the uh, issue of because we're a consumer podcast uh, fraud uh, in this space and uh, and a lot of the difficulties that consumers or investors, if you want to call them that, will have in this space, not only from all the confusion and all the technical terms we've talked about, not only with you know understanding how their particular programs and wallets work to get through all of the all the steps they need to try to get money in or out of the system. By money I mean you know Canadian dollars or fiat currency. Um, but there are also companies that um, companies or coins or whatever which you know, might be somewhat fly-by-night, maybe um, backed by not the most reputable people that might go, in effect, out of business or be pulled. And I think the term is rug-pulled on people. And then even for, for companies that are trying to stay in the space are facing, you know, these unique problems of, of integrating into the regular financial capital system 
how can we like is there a, is there a kind of regulatory model that will take out some of the major the major problems in this space cuz like to me one of the big ones obviously is as i said people seem to think that they can put their money in but getting it back out in the form of money um in a relatively easy way seems to be blocked almost on purpose by some of these some of these structures and then there are other ones where you you might invest and as i said the entire coin might disappear or become valueless because the the founders have run off with the initial investment so can you think of how we can protect people from i guess i'll call it direct investment in cryptocurrency assets so that they don't you know fall victim to those very simple sort of advanced fee kind of scams sure Uh, according to me the reason i think that the magnitude of the issues to this extent is because of social media and i see a very great analogy with what happened 20 years back with the dot com bubble and mm-hmm. uh, i don't think there's anything i'd say significantly different from that time because that was also a revolutionary technology and bit blockchain is also a revolutionary technology but the difference is that at that time we did not have social media so that's why we did not have access to the extent of information that we have in today's time and that is why we see all these social media influencers on youtube instagram and all of these social media platforms just trying to pump one particular coin and then just trying to exploit people and take their money away and this i believe is probably the biggest issue and if we talk about regulation i think just stringent advertising regulations can take us at least a step ahead in to actually solve the investor protection issue no sorry but like you're talking about direct advertisements like the like the ads on the super bowl or the ads that they took off the london tube you heard about that not the london tube one but yes yeah, the london tube i believe the the financial regulator in the uk uh or maybe it was the media regulator ruled that the um the uh the types of advertisements in the in the London underground were uh misleading in the sense of trying to pump up um people's expectations that indirect investment in cryptocurrency would produce a very likely return and that there may have been some small print on it but there's no way you could see it as the train was moving or when you're walking by on the platform right and it was misleading so they just said stop stop putting up crypto ads unless you make them you know reverse the size of the text so that you could lose all your money as first and then in tiny print is or you might want to try this <laughs> i don't know what they specified but anyway they took down the ads and then the super bowl ads as, as you probably saw uh you know there were several that were with high profile uh celebs trying to trying to get people to put money in which always strikes me as a little bit of desperation but uh sorry go on you were going to say yeah absolutely and uh along with this i see a lot of social media influencers on youtube and they'll just start their video by saying that this is not an investment advice but it actually is and mm-hmm. that is why people are getting scammed and so i i think firstly consumers and investors they should be just a little more aware and skeptical firstly with the part that whatever crypto or any specific token is not going to change their life they're not going to make life changing gains and even if they will make some money that is going to take some significant amount of time considering the volatility that is there in the market and the biggest thing that i can probably suggest is 
just do a lot of research in terms of what the project is doing. Does it make sense from an individual point of view? Is it going to make the world a better place? Is it going to make something more efficient? And then maybe researching a bit on what the founding team is, or maybe just use an investment advisor, but just be a little skeptical and just put in a little more effort in terms of researching whatever they're doing. And the most important thing would be just don't put all of your money in any specific token or just in crypto because it can go to zero and there's nothing that anybody will be able to do about it. Yeah, well, it's um, lightly regulated, let's just say, and, and, and regulators around the world are deciding what to do about this whole phenomenon. I mean, some some countries have even banned banned the cryptocurrency version because they want to keep control of their sovereign right to uh, print money. Like I, I believe China and uh, Russia maybe have, have banned the the use of cryptocurrencies as currency. Um, well, on on that, um, I do want to just I, we're at an hour, but I do I do want to briefly. Um, talk about another situation that you and I discussed and that was the in in, in Ontario where we where we are uh, based where PX based um, the securities regulator did approve a uh, uh, an ETF so that's an exchange traded fund which had as, as its base assets cryptocurrencies and uh, the first one was called 3iq and and or at least that was a company that was was creating the funds and and at first the staff of the OSC said no because this volatility that we, we were talking about in the underlying assets was so large that you couldn't you know with a straight face sell an ETF which is based on the opening and closing price of these things um, and you holding a basket of them right that it would be so volatile that it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a safe enough investment even for an aggressive investor in Ontario and then the 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 director over overruled them and now Ontario has quite a few of these uh, and it's one of, the, one of the few jurisdictions where the integration of Bitcoin type things in that way into the regular securities uh, trading has happened and I just I at first was horrified by this and you know we thought about maybe putting in some comments to the proceedings and all this stuff although it was not possible for us to get our head around it in time um, but you had a different take on on that whole ETF and how a securities regulator could work with, with crypto assets. I wonder if you could explain why your reaction was different than mine. Sure. So I was not entirely convinced with the volatility argument, primarily because let's just talk about cannabis industry. That industry is also very volatile. We can just see when research the next day and the whole industry could shake down. Because in even in that industry, a research or a particular regulation or legislation can have a significant impact in terms of these ETFs. So I don't I was not entirely convinced with volatility being the primary factor for rejecting an ETF. But the reason I found out in those prospectus or the arguments made by the securities regulator was that it's not really possible to get the right price of Bitcoin because there's no one controlling it. So who are we saying that? How can we say that? Okay, Bitcoin is worth $48,000 as at this point of time because we don't have any particular entity on which we can rely on. So I believe they eventually reached to a point where they said that they'll take the average price of some of the biggest exchange or 
some of the biggest reporters like coin gecko or something but mm-hmm. yeah that was the main point yeah i have to admit that in i understood the reversal when i read it but i still believe there's um some some trust in a new area let's just put it that way as you say um the exchanges where you can go and buy into crypto whether it's ether or um any other coin even if you um even if you are trusting their their reported average price of the volume of trades for the day you know you have really no idea who's trading or what Absolutely. Um, you know, what, what exactly that day was like compared to other typical days, whereas we have a lot more data for the stock market and and and, and regulators can see if something has a funny run, right? And they can, they can even put a stop trade order on things. I, I don't know how the terms of the of the approval for these funds uh, were and may perhaps the OSC, if it sees that something is particularly volatile one day, can ask them to stop, you know. Um, recording it that way, I don't know, but it's certainly treading into new areas, and it did kind of give me little shivers, feeling of you know collateralized debt uh, obligations and 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 tranches of debt that we had in two thousand and seven eight, right? So it felt a bit the same to me, but I, I have to admit I, I haven't gone into the details. But FYI, folks, you can get into crypto uh, through your uh, your friendly securities dealer in in Ontario, at least. Um, for one of these uh, crypto exchange traded funds, my personal advice would be not to do it. But I'm not giving I'm not giving you investment advice. I'm giving you negative investment advice, which is uh, I don't see exactly how they work. And uh, and until uh, until you get somebody who's a qualified advisor explain how it fits into your life, I wouldn't recommend uh, just doing it because you heard us talking about it today. Um, on that, uh, one last thing, Guara, because we're a little over time, but I think it's worth it. One other issue that sure. is tied to privacy, and I think you know yeah. where I'm going with this. Um, we at PIAC have been trying to protect people from SIM swap fraud, and we had an episode uh, with uh, Randall Baron Chong some weeks ago uh, talking about this fraud where fraudster will convince a new tel- cell phone company that you are, for example, me, and and uh, you want to bring your phone number to this new company and uh, to the SIM card that you have because you, the fraudster, I mean, already have a phone. And if you can transfer my account on the old cell phone provider to this new cell phone, then uh, you can start logging on to uh, well-known accounts like Gmail and trying to hack in. And one of the things that we've noticed with SIM swap fraud, and I asked you about was, the people who lose the most money on SIM swap fraud are all crypto holders. Right. And um, it's because in part, it's easy to transfer um, money out uh, because you just give instruction through the, through the crypto wallet that, you know, you want to make this transaction and trade it in for fiat currency or, or move it somewhere. Right. And it can be done fairly quickly, but that's the same for a lot of other accounts you get access to. I believe that another risk factor with this is also that there's no like $2,000 a day kind of limit on crypto exchange um, protocols for the most part. So they can say if you had 500,000, they can move 500,000 that day once they get control. Um, but, But what I asked you specifically was, well, I thought the ledger that we're talking about 
right, is totally public. So we can verify each transaction. So wouldn't it be possible if I was the you know RCMP or the Ontario Provincial Police after the fact, why couldn't they just say, oh, well, we found which wallet the money was transferred over to because it's publicly on the blockchain. So now we'll just go arrest the holder of that wallet. Why doesn't that work? This is actually a very interesting point. If I have to articulate it, what I'd say is that blockchain is actually the solution of the problem that we're talking about. Because if, let's just say that money is transferred to a wallet that does not have KYC or that wallet address is not related to a specific account, but that wallet is a decentralized wallet. So we know a wallet address, but we don't know who owns that wallet. That's where the problem starts. So let's just say we know that okay, the money and the fraud was conducted and the money was transferred to this specific wallet address. And that is what authorities are doing. They know about this particular thing. But in order to continue that trail, that money has to move to a different wallet address and essentially reach to a point where the authorities can actually track down the person who's done the same thing. And the reason this is possible and the way this has happened is, I'd say the example that comes to my mind is, what happened with the Tether and Bitfinex thing. I think we did a research on it and I'm not sure whether we touched on this in this podcast or not. But what really happened is there was this manipulation regarding the 2017 boom. And Mm -hmm. two researchers, Armin Shams and John Griffins, they actually traced the whole blockchain data. And they actually found out that Bitcoin price was manipulated by Tether and Bitfinex, the research indicated that. And that was only possible because they were able to trace the whole trail in the blockchain data. And that is something that is possible and the authorities can do it. But the easiest way to execute and implement this would be just enabling and enforcing KYC in all the wallets that we are seeing. So let's just say if I have a decentralized wallet, I am not really required to put my name and no one can know that I am the owner of this wallet. But if I'm opening a wallet in an exchange like Binance or Coinbase or some other exchange, I'm actually supposed to submit my details and that is where I can be traced. But criminals, they're usually going to use these decentralized wallets and they'll only be traced once they'll, you know, transfer the money to a different wallet and the authorities are actually right at it. But uh, another loophole in this is, let's just say they transfer the money to a wallet, but they can just transfer the money to some third world jurisdiction and they can just cash it out before the authorities are actually able to reach out to them. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're probably still as a person, as a criminal on the run. And I know that there were some U S folks that got um, finally uh, tracked down for that big hack uh, in the billions recently. So, I mean, good old police work can, can make you have to run around even if you think you pulled it off and now you're living in, you know, Timbuktu, but it's not an easy life for the for the fraudsters. Yeah. But the point is that while that police work may or may not be happening, it may not be happening for your relatively small loss of five digits of Canadian dollars, right? right? Uh, and the victims that we've spoken to, yeah, tend to have pretty big hits because they kept a fair bit of cryptocurrency either as an investment or they were just holding it in and transferring it into, you know, before they bought a house or whatever, and now it's gone. Right. And uh, the police might some years down the road find it, but mm, maybe the money's gone then anyway, been spent, right? Or, or maybe you never do get that investigation. So I think that knowing that, um, I think it's 
all the more important then to lean on the telcos to have systems in place meanwhile so that they catch uh they can they cannot have the fraud happen in the first place and that requires training their customer service representatives putting pins on your your sim card so you can't switch without knowing another secret factor yeah and just having quicker uh quicker systems for being able to halt these things. And then perhaps as we've suggested to the CRTC, you know, finding the companies, if they don't follow the protocol, if the CRTC comes up with one uh, as they do in Australia. So, you know, until, until we get there, this also, you know, the regime that I'm talking about to help prevent SIM swap, which we've been, as you know, fighting the CRTC about. Yeah. Even if crypto, you could track them down. There's still other frauds that happen through people's credit cards and other caps. So traditional finance, in other words, wouldn't be helped by anything except better telco procedures. So, yeah, so that's where the, well, I've got a couple more things written on my sheet, but I'm not going to torture people with going through the the finer points of definance and DAOs and this sort of thing on this one. But what I think I'd like to do is take a couple of months and come back and maybe do something a little different here and and invite listeners if they've had any issues with crypto to to send us an email uh, piac at piac.ca with any crypto issues they've had and perhaps Gaurav, we can have you back on and we can do this again in six months or something and see if we have a better you know with this basic understanding we can have a better focus on particular consumer crypto issues that might still be there and maybe by then you'll also you know have some more uh, I guess I'll call them positive use cases and, and maybe some successes in the area so that we can present a balanced absolutely portrait of this this area. But I wanted to thank you very much for coming on and frankly explaining something that's pretty tough in a pretty accessible way to us. So thanks and, and best of luck with your studies. Are you finishing up this term or is it, do you have to write a thesis? Firstly, thank you so much, Ponsonado. And in terms of my studies, I'm actually done with my second term. After that, I just have a thesis, which I'm doing on DAOs. And uh, I do think the other podcast will be very interesting considering how the space <laughs> is moving and there's so many things are happening. Yeah, good. Um, well, yeah, DAOs, we didn't really get to that, but that I think might be an issue for a, for a future podcast. And I can see yeah. some interesting maybe potential consumer empowerment even out of that idea, although it could also lead, as usual, to the regular yoking of consumers to the almighty dollar. But we'll see. Uh, Thank you again. Um, We're going to finish up. I don't have any extra told you so part to this this podcast because we've gone extra long. But I wanted to thank also our producer, Lisa, from Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa for being patient and giving us the extra time today. And we will come back at you in about two weeks with another podcast on the woes and trials and tribulations of working with the CRTC and the troubles that are over there that are causing everyone else headaches. So we'll be back in about two weeks with another CRTC bad podcast. Until then, bye for now. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Fight For That. The Public Interest Advocacy Centre needs your help to keep making this show and to keep fighting for you. I'm John Lawford. See you next time for another round of consumer protection.